just heard is the national anthem of the country of Bhutan. Hi, I'm Rudy Basich, an advisor at the Jacques Marche Museum of Tibetan Art. In late 2018, I sat down with Meg Van Trudeau, former executive director of the Jacques Marche, to get her impressions of a recent trip that the museum had taken to Bhutan. All right, Meg, so let's hear about Bhutan. So the Tibetan Museum's connection with Bhutan goes back to 2004. And in 2004, a group of Bhutanese monks came to the United States, and one of them was the Dorji Lopin Rinpoche. And to take a step back, Bhutan has its own Dalai Lama, its own spiritual ruler. The way Tibet has the Dalai Lama, Bhutan has what's known as the Jay Kempo. And the monk who was visiting New York back in 2004 was the second in command to the Jay Kempo, and he was known as the Dorji Lopin Rinpoche of Bhutan. And in 2004, the museum had a terrible roof incident uh, there was water everywhere. A rainstorm had torn off part of the roof, and there was water everywhere. And His Holiness came in and said, there's a gumpa in the West that's in distress, and I have to go there. And somebody at the event he was speaking at said, well, the Tibetan Museum in Staten Island had a flood. And he said, yes, I know. Gumpa means uh, shrine in, in Tibet. And so we quickly met the Dorji Lopin Rinpoche. We picked him up at the ferry. We brought him up to the museum. We had to take him up on the roof. And then um, that began a long relationship with his monastery and the Tibetan Museum. So he has been to the museum three times. And monks from his monastery have been to the museum probably about five or six times since 2004. So Bhutan always remained this mysterious place, this interesting place. And once the museum started traveling, we said Bhutan has to has to be on our list. Lama Karma is also associated yes, with, with Lama Bhutan. Yes, Lama Karma was a monk from uh, His Holiness's monastery. Um, and Lama Karma was on that first trip with him, and Lama Karma has since been 
to the museum. So that sort of began our... So you met the two of them at the same time? We met the two of them at the same time, and that began our, our friendship with Bhutan. In 2013, the museum started the travel program, and the first trip was Tibet. And on that trip, there was four or five travelers who went into Bhutan for four days at the end of our Tibet trip. And they were mostly in Paro, which is the main city of Bhutan. So they spent most of their time in Paro and, and Timpu, which is the capital. Um, so this wanting to go to Bhutan had been on, on our, our radar screen for, for quite some time. When we traveled to Tibet, our tour guide was a gentleman by the name of Bill Jones. And he was a National Geographic tour guide, a geographic expeditions tour guide. And uh, he has since also gone out on his own and has done his own tours. And so we had the opportunity to travel with Bill again. Bill spent an early part of his career actually training guides in Bhutan. Travel is the second largest industry in Bhutan, and the first being hydroelectric. They export hydroelectric power to India. That's where a lot of their revenue comes from. And then, so there are glaciers? Are they in the hill and mountains? They are in the southern part of the Himalayan mountains. So it yeah. is the same latitude as Florida. Um, it never gets freezing, freezing cold. It goes down into the 30s, but it never gets that bitter wind chill. The elevation. Uh, you're high in the elevation, but you're not getting snow the way Tibet gets snow and the way that the Himalayas get. And Bill was your tour guide for Tibet. He was our tour guide for Tibet, and he and Sering, uh, who has been a longtime tour guide in Bhutan and now mm. has his own travel company, were our tour guides in Bhutan. So Bhutan, you need to have a visa. You need to, uh, it sort of was called a, a tourism tax, but that's really not what it is. It's a, um, a minimum spend. So you have to spend $250 a day when you're traveling. And that includes your guides, fees, your food, your hotel stays, your transit. So they want visitors that are spending time in the town, spending some money in the town. They're not the backpacker scene the way Nepal is. So it's a little bit more high-end travel that's oriented around cultural experiences. So, for example, on our trip, we were able to go to a festival. We Before we get into the things that happened, with the Jacques Marche tour, in this case, was all that money called for upfront? Or was it something that was a daily? No, no, uh, it was built into the cost of the tour. Our tours are all inclusive. So the $250 minimum spend included the nights that we spent in the hotels, the meals that we had. So all of that was covered in the cost of the whole trip. Oh, nice. Don't have to think about anything. No, you don't have to think about anything. <clears throat> and when you travel with the museum, we make sure that, that you don't have to think about anything. Yeah. Um, a few other fun facts about Bhutan, I guess, before we go into the trip itself. Um, Bhutan is a carbon-negative country. Uh, they are very environmentally friendly. They are very forward-thinking when it comes to the environment. One particular town that we visited was the migration grounds of the black neck crane. Bhutan and Tibet are about 50 miles away from each other, and in the winters, these cranes migrate from Tibet to warmer climates in, 
in Bhutan. And that particular village was solar for many, many years. They didn't get electricity until three years ago when they could actually bury the electricity under the ground. And they did that because they knew the cranes would strangle themselves on the electrical wires. And so the whole town felt the cranes were, were more important than their electricity. So until they were able to put the wires underground, they were pretty much operating on solar. And that's an expensive so, feat, yeah. Yes. Also, Bhutan is a new democracy that still has a, a royal family. And the king is very revered by the, the people of Bhutan, much like the queen in, in England. But the country is moving from a monarchy to a democracy, and they actually just went through their second round of elections. But that is more of a lineage thing, but not connected to Buddhism. Correct. The king is a royal family, and they um, actually just changed the succession rules that if the king were to have a daughter, uh, she would become the queen. So they've moved it from being a male lineage to the, ne the oldest child's lineage. Well, everybody's catching yeah. up. Uh, Bhutan's an interesting country because they're going through so many changes right now. And, and will they become a parliamentary they, system? It or? is going through a parliamentary system. But what they've said was, and, and we met with some Bhutanese officials while we were there, they said, we want to modernize, but we don't want to westernize. Right. So they still want to retain their cultural traditions, um, you know, but yet they want cell phones and better electricity and better running water and mm. making the, the cities more more livable. And, and there's a great uh, growth of urbanization and folks moving from farms and villages to the city. So they want to be able to adapt to that, adapt to that change. They want modern education. English is the medium of education for the students uh, in, in Bhutan. And everyone goes to school to the ninth grade. And then after that, um, Students can, if they have some wealth, they can pay to go to private school. The top, top tier students get scholarships to study in India, Sri Lanka, Australia, England, and United States. Mm. And 99% of those students that go abroad actually come back to Bhutan. Mm. And then the next tier of top students uh, can go to college in Bhutan. And there's one college in Bhutan with five different uh, schools and we were told when we were there that they were working on a a nursing and medical school for for Bhutan so that they wouldn't have to go abroad for oh for interesting skills. so yeah I mean it was a really interesting time to to be there and really interesting to to learn um, we we had a meeting with a gentleman who runs the United Nations operations in Bhutan and we met with him and we met with the first trained uh, psychologist in Bhutan and he was very open with us about some of the challenges that they're facing in Bhutan and you know it's, it's similar to what we're facing in the United States. But it, I would think they'd also have the extra challenge of um that so much is going on in it's a very religious country in a lot of ways, no? It is a very religious country in that Buddhism is everywhere. So important, yeah. And that culturally people are Buddhists, but they may not be practitioners. And so here's, here's a story that, that we were 
that we were told was they are um, experiencing some issues with opioids. And one of the things this psychologist was doing was using Buddhism, meditation, prostrations to work with addicts, to work with um, drug dealers, to refocus their mindset and use those Buddhist practices um, that they may you know, only do when there's a ceremony. And this is the psychologist. This is what the psychologist is telling us, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And it's interesting, I thought you were going to say that they were trying to get away from that, but it no, seems like... No, they were like, trying to, to use it to... Yeah. So, that, so a, these, are, these were people who were trained in the West for psychology. He was, yes, he was trained in well, Western, in Australia, and uh, he was also trained in Sri Lanka, um, but yeah. he practiced modern. And then went back yeah, to and Bhutan. Then went back to Bhutan, yeah, yeah. So the trip itself was 14 days, and it was a mixture of cities and small villages. Um, we started in Paro, and then the next day flew toward the center of the country and then worked our way back uh, overland by, by bus. Um, Bhutan is the size of the state of New Jersey, and there's one road called the East-West Highway that goes from east to west through the mountains. So there was a lot of uh, hills and switchbacks, and we had a fantastic driver who navigated those mountain roads without even blinking an eye. He was so calm behind the wheel of the, the bus, and sometimes you're sort of looking over the edge of the mountain, like, mm. you know, this bus is a little close to the edge, but <laughs> he, was, he was really fantastic. And in some places, you're also sharing the road with horses and cattle. And I take it. There aren't that many railings. No. Oh, no, no. The crash barriers in some instances are just sort of like a, a rope. Uh, or a rock, <laughs> yeah. 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 It would be really hard to do it justice just verbally, but obviously I've seen the pictures that you'd sent back and and just the ceremonies, let alone the scenery and the things that you've, you'd witnessed. Is there any way you could describe those a little bit more? We had the opportunity to go to a local festival that was the called the Tangbimani Festival, and it started with a fire purification ceremony where the monks and the black hat sorcerer paraded out into the, the field, and there were these two giant hay stacks, dried hay, pillars of dried hay, I guess, and they get lit on fire. And the minute that these haystacks get lit on fire. Everybody runs through the middle of these two haystacks, and the idea is that you do it three times as a way to to purify yourself. So, I mean, forget about the fire just being so hot, but the, the noise that it made. Crackling. The crackling and the smoke coming out of it was just really, you know, the wind would blow and the, you know, the wind would change and the smoke would And blow. was there a connection to the land and the fertility, or was it just a religious... It was a religious festival, and running through the fire was for purification. Of course, uh, our group believed, you know, when in Rome, you should participate in any of these kind of festivals, and our Everybody from the group went through at least once. A few folks did go through three times, but it was just really fantastic to be 
with the, the Bhutanese and participate in their festival. And from there, we moved into the courtyard of the monastery where they had a combination of folk dance, folk singing, and then sacred llama dancing, which is very uh, elaborate, a lot of costume. The Tibetan longhorns are played, and we were just in this fantastic setting. And then on the other side of the, the monastery were your typical festival grounds where you could buy an ice cream and uh, go shopping and sit and have a picnic. And they had activities for all of the kids. And so it was really great to, to walk through and see things from uh, the locals' point of view. Bhutan is the land of the medicine Buddha, no? It is the land of Padmasambhava, who they revere as the second Buddha. And Padmasambhava was the Buddhist teacher that brought Buddhism to Tibet and Bhutan. And what was interesting about Bhutan was in a lot of the temples, Padmasambhava was the central icon. Shakyamuni Buddha was on one side of Padmasambhava, and then there was either Green Tara, Pemalingpa or Vajrasattva on the other, or Vajrapani, Vajrasattva on the other side of um, Padmasambhava. So it was very different from when you would go into a Tibetan temple where you'd see the Buddha as the mm -hmm. main figure with um, the attendants on, on either side of him. So it was, in that regard, it was a little different. The Bhutanese are Nyingma and Kagyu Buddhists. Um, so within Tibetan Buddhism, there's Nyingma, Kagyu, Geluk, and Sakya. So they're primarily Nyingma and Kagyu. And the scale of the sculpture in all of the temples was something that was really amazing. I mean, just absolutely massive, massive statues. We visited a nunnery, and their temple was under, <clears throat> under construction, brand new. And the workers were actually making the statues. And so they were wire frames covered in paper mache and then uh, clay over them, and then they would be painted and then consecrated. So because the statues had not yet been consecrated, we were able to photograph them and actually able to walk up onto the altar and stand. You know, we were dwarfed by how large these statues really were. So you're not allowed to take the photos once they're finished? Once the statues are finished and consecrated, there's no photography. So the inside of the temples are <clears throat> just really etched in our our memories and not mm. uh, not able to Which be, is kind of nice, something we, we're is, so not used yeah. to anymore, yeah. <laughs> I know, it is kind of nice to be in a, a, a temple and not see a million cameras or, or cell phones, although I felt like for the museum there were some good ideas that I'll have to draw them out as sketches and, and bring them bring them back to us because I thought that they were some of the uh, design elements would actually look quite nice in in our museum. So I'll have to mm -hmm. figure out a way to make that happen. Yes, we'll have to Google that. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure there's probably a good probably a good photo book. Um, so now the food, we have Manhattan right across yeah. the water. So. You have quite a selection of foods, but there's no such thing as a Bhutanese restaurant, or is there? I, I don't, you know, I don't know if there's a Bhutanese restaurant in Manhattan. We'll have to do some do some digging. Was it very unique. The food was excellent, actually. The food was very, very good. It was very fresh, very organic. A lot of vegetarian 
cuisines. Sweet, spicy, spicy. salty. Oh, spicy. They love chilies. Spicy. Chilies were everywhere. Chilies were in every dish. And the national dish of Bhutan is something called emadatse, which is chilies in a cheese sauce. And if you put it with some rice or some bread, it sort of takes some of the heat out of the, <laughs> the chili, but very good. And every place we went, we had to try the emadatse to compare which one was spicier, which cheese was creamier. Sounds like six straight. Um, yeah. The, there was a lot of buckwheat. So there was a lot of buckwheat noodles, buckwheat mm. pancakes. Buckwheat grows quite well over there. And the other thing that was interesting is Bhutan exports potatoes. So there was a lot of potato dishes, and then they also export potatoes. So kind of a mix between Indian and Tibetan. Probably, yeah, I would mm. say a little bit closer to Indian in the spice mm. category. Not a lot of, not a lot of sauce on the on the foods. Very light as far oh, as the well, the yeah, sauce would go. Then, so yeah. it was actually really really quite good. Um, we did uh, go to a local restaurant that was geared for for tourists but uh really ate a lot of the the local cuisine and i would say there was a lot of chicken and a lot of mutton but not not so much beef although the tibet the Bhutanese do eat eat meat it's it's although the um cuisine is primarily vegetarian there is some some meat and we did see quite a bit of rice being harvested Mm. And there was a few different types of rice. There was some some red rice, uh, ginger rice, white rice. So a lot of rice with with every meal too. So when you went, what was the season over there? It was quite warm. It was sort of getting into fall. Getting into uh, fall. Okay. In the mountains, like when we were driving through the mountains, I would say you needed a fleece or a sweater or a light jacket. But really, the weather was quite. Quite nice for touring and quite nice for hiking. Um, you know, pretty pretty comfortable. Mm. Um, the Bhutanese are very. They they still dress very traditionally, and whenever you go into a government building, if you are Bhutanese, you need to be in your traditional dress, and the men have to add a white stole called a cabinet and the ladies actually have to wear <clears throat> a red stole when they go into the the government buildings for any official uh official government functions so it is quite uh quite nice to see folks in their formal, uh, formal dress their cultural dress and of course it's it's great because you see the the little boys wear their uh, their goes, but then they have their, you know, Nike or their Adidas sneakers on <laughs> with their goes. So it's, uh, it's great. Um, oh, wow. and then also every home has a shrine, which is very interesting. So we, we had a home visit. Sort of like how it used to be right, here with the cross. Right. Wall. Exactly. And the shrine room is the most important room in the house. It's the oh, largest, not just a shrine, but a, oh, shrine, no, a room. shrine room, a shrine room. Oh boy. And because we were guests in the house, we were, uh, we were entertained in the in the shrine room, and we had a ara, which is a rice wine that's homemade, and um, they put a little caterpillar in it, similar to the like, worm in, in tequila. Mm. So, I, as the museum guide, I was able to eat the worm, <laughs> and we uh, had a very wonderful afternoon with a young man who 
was he lived in the house with his father, and they had two acres of farm, and there was a truck that came into town once a week and collected the produce and took it into the the market for everybody in the town. And this young man, um, he was married, but his wife was studying at the university in Paro, so she was living uh, away from the village. But he had run for the, I guess, town council of his town, and he didn't win the election, although when we walked through the town with him, a lot of folks were stopping to talk to him and, and shake his hand. So he said in two more years he was going to going to run again. And run I again. think, uh, you know, this young 29-year-old young man, I think, has a, a very bright, a very bright future. Mm. The, the houses are up high um, because historically the animals would spend the nights underneath the homes, Aww. sort of. And then um, the Bhutanese government actually outlawed that. So the first level of the house was used for storage, and then the second level was the shrine room, the kitchen, and the sleeping room, so it was great, too. On posts? They're sort of on posts, and the the bottom is sort of like a... Open. uh, Some sides and some open, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was like a basement storage, so maybe So tell me more about that. Animals like... The, the farm animals would sleep. Cows? Cows would go under because they would also, Must you know, when, when your house was made of wood and thatch, it would actually thatch. heat the animal body heat would heat the house. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. And if you read any old-style Tibetan books, they, they describe the same thing, that the animals mm. would sort of live under the And at the museum, the we have uh, quite a few to read. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. But the shrine room reminds me also of the museum space. Because it's it's probably you know maybe something that Jacques might have read and right? possibly yeah, yeah possibly yeah. it's like well yeah. if I could afford this I'm gonna have a real a shrine, shrine room. Room. yeah yeah and the shrine room was the most elaborate elaborate room in the house with I mean tankas and paint, mm. you know wood altars and statues is it static the, once they set it up it stays I think that it's way. static although probably some of the wall hangings would be mm. would be changed or added added to and then during the any kind of Buddhist holiday there might be different offerings that were or different altars uh, you know like add more butter lamps in at different times of the year for things like you know losar or um, any other kind of ceremony and then if the family were to have a monk visit them the monk would actually sleep in the shrine room In the next half of Meg's remembrances of the 2018 Jacques Marche Museum trip to Bhutan, we visit a Bhutanese Rinpoche, go to Padmasambhava's tiger's nest, witness a royal procession, and learn the importance of a Bhutanese guide when traveling the country. For now, from the Jacques Marche Museum of Tibetan Art, on Staten Island's Lighthouse Hill, overlooking historic Richmond Town. Tashi Delic, 